In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue the study of um, the book of First Kings. We had a couple of weeks off, and we studied the first six chapters. Um, does anyone have any recollection of what the first six, uh, six chapters were about? So we can kind of review what happened in the first six chapters of First Kings. Okay, Solomon was chosen as king. His um, his half brother Adonijah uh, wanted to become king and tried to take the kingdom for himself, but in the end Solomon prevailed. Okay, um, he became king. Yeah, he worked on the temple. He built the temple, right? He was uh, we spoke I think it was last time about the temple and the furnishing, uh, the, the building of the temple, the structure of the temple, um, the materials used in the building of the temple. Um, we also know that Solomon married the um, daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And we spoke about how that was like <coughs> the beginning of um, Solomon starting to get uh, kind of intertwined with uh, Gentile women and how eventually that was going to lead him um, astray from God. Um, today, we're going to speak about more about um, the temple, uh, the uh, the 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 furnishings of the temple before we spoke about like the actual construction of the temple itself. Um, this time we're going to speak a little bit more about um, what's inside the temple. Okay. It says, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished all his house. So it took Solomon um, uh, seven years to build the temple. Okay. And then he worked for 13 years after that to build his own palace, okay, for himself. He built the temple first, and then he built his house. Um, we spoke um, uh, about uh, the prophet Haggai, who was at the time after the exile, when the people returned from exile, uh, and um, the, the, the temple of God was in ruins, it was destroyed, and the people were delaying rebuilding the temple. Uh, and then God rebuked the people and said, you guys are living in your own like comfortable homes while my house remains desolate and in ruins. And so we see here Solomon is actually focusing more on the, the first, let me build the temple of God, and then he will get pay attention to building his own house. And we all speak about like giving the first fruits to God, um, meaning meaning the, the very first thing that we have, whether it be the time, whether it be money, whether it be our, our effort, whatever it is that we have, we are giving the first of it to God because he deserves the best um, of what we had. There are several reasons why um, it might have taken so long for King Solomon to build um, his house uh, this period of 13 years. Um, one is that as far as the temple goes, that only took seven years, um, it said that God had um, spoken to King David before Solomon and helped to prepare the materials of the temple. So King David had given kind of a lot of the, the preparation of the building of the temple already to King Solomon. So it's possible that he already kind of had a head start um, in that with bu building the temple. Also, it's possible that all of the workers who went into this, this um, seven years of building the temple, that they were exhausted from building it. So, so it slowed them down um, for building um, the, the house of uh, King Solomon. Um, also, the palace was actually larger than the temple. It was a series of buildings and courtyards. Um, so there's actually more effort, more work to be done to build um, the house of Solomon more than it is to build um, the temple. So Solomon spent three years 
um, preparing to build a temple and seven years to build it, 13 years to build his own palace um, with all its annexes. And so it's a total of 23 years um, uh, in, in, in total from the beginning of like the preparation of the temple to when his own house was completed. Um, and then this left him with about 17 years left in his reign. So you see, he spent the majority of his reign focusing on construction, right? The construction of the house of God, the construction of his own palace, and 17 years was left. And so um, you can imagine that during this time where King Solomon is very preoccupied with construction, that he is not giving as much attention to other things. And so later on, when we read about um, the successor of Solomon, who was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, we see maybe that because... King Solomon had not given as much attention that Rehoboam did not nearly have any of the wisdom that um, King Solomon had. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and window and window was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. What was this house of the forest of Lebanon? This was not um, really like a dwelling place for King Solomon, but it was more kind of like an administration building, um, a storage building like for weapons and other things. Um, and it was called this um, house of the forest of Lebanon, um, because most of the building materials that were used to build it came from Lebanon, um, and also because of its location, probably like in the midst of the trees. Um, although it was called the king's house, um, it wasn't really the residence. It was more for um, administration purposes. Um, some people believe that Solomon built the house um, uh, out of Jerusalem to enjoy a more peaceful atmosphere. So like he wanted an, a second residence Maybe it doubled as a second residence for him, or he could go somewhere outside of Jerusalem, um, um, and and and, and so that's one possibility. So um, how it's described is there were three stories, had 45 chambers um, on on the on the side of this huge hall, and each story included 15 chambers uh, for a total of 45. Six chambers on each long side, and three chambers on the third side. The windows in the middle story were above the windows in the lower story and the windows of the higher story were above the windows in the middle story, and all the windows faced this inner court. He also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. Okay, so he made this hall um, with, with many pillars in it, in front of this house that is, is in the, forest, uh, the, the house um, that's in Lebanon, to receive those who come to the king. So it was kind of like um, like an area where people who are dignitaries and people who are coming to the king, where he could receive them um, and, and deal with like the issues of the kingdom. Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. Okay, so this is where the throne was, this, this hall. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. So again, there is a, a house here for his wife, the daughter of King of, of Pharaoh. Um, the three buildings described here seem to be like connected in one location. Um, Solomon's house is the first, 
The second one is this hall for judgment. The third is this hall for women, including Pharaoh's daughter in particular. Um, and then north of this um, kind of se series of buildings was the temple. So it was all kind of one large campus, um, several buildings of Solomon's residence, administration, the, the hall for the, for the women, and then the temple to the north. All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves, and also on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, larger stones, some ten cubits and some eight cubits, and above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. So if you can see here in this picture. Uh, hmm? Okay. So you can see here, this is like this whole, whole courtyard, this whole, this whole campus area. Okay. So the temple is here. This is the north. And then... There's a courtyard, and then to the south, you see these other buildings we've mentioned. There's Solomon's Palace, the house for Pharaoh's daughter, the house of the forest of Lebanon, the hall of pillars, the porch of pillars, the porch or the hall of the throne, where King Solomon's throne was. And, and there are this large court, and then there's like smaller courts inside these, these areas. Okay, So like I said, it's like a very large, um, it's a very large area. This is another view um, where, again, you can see that there's the great court. The great court kind of surrounds everything. And then there's the temple here that has its own court, just like the temple court, the altar here in this outer part of the court. Um, and then there's the middle court. And then there's this southern part. The middle court has Solomon's Palace. The southern part has the Hall of Thrones, the Hall of Pillars, and then th the House of the Forest of Lebanon. So you can kind of get a sense of how things were laid out. Now, there is some interpretation to this. Um, the details that were given um, didn't allow us to be able to know exactly, but this is kind of a basic idea of, um, of kind of how things are laid out. Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram, or this is actually Hiram. Hiram is the same king of Tyre that we spoke about before who helped King Solomon in the construction of the temple. So now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He's the same one. And now he's going to be, his focus is going to be on the furnishing of the temple. Okay. Before we were talking about the construction. Now we're talking about the furnishing of the temple. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Um, what's interesting is that this man, Hiram, he was half Jewish and half Gentile. And uh, like the, the church fathers speak about how like the participation of the Gentiles with the Jews in constructing of the temple is like symbolic of the salvation being offered to all people because the temple was the place for offering sacrifice, the, uh, the, the, the offering of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And the fact that it is not only the Jewish people that are participating in the construction, but it is also the Gentiles that are participating in this construction. So it was like in preparation for the, the, the forgiveness of sins that is going to be offered to everyone, of course, in, in through the Messiah. 
um, and, uh, that was to come later on. Okay. Um, one other interesting thing is here when it says that he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So here it's mentioning that he is the tribe of Naphtali. But in the book of Chronicles, Cr Chronicles is kind of like a parallel account um, of uh, many of the same events that's happening in the, in the book of Kings, um, like a historical account. So in, in the second Chronicles 2.14, it mentions that Hiram's mother was from the tribe of Dan and not from Naphtali. So here saying that his mother, the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, his mother is from Naphtali, whereas in Second Chronicles 2.14, it says that she was from the tribe of Dan. And so some people have offered explanations to try to explain this discrepancy. Why does it say the tribe of Naphtali in one place and the tribe of Dan in another place? So some people say that there must have been two different Hirams, um, both of them talented in bronze work. Um, of course, if you have a region like the region of Tyre, where there are many artisans and many, you know, craftsmen who were talented with bronze work, and also that the name Hiram is a common name, then yes, you could think, yeah, maybe this is a different one, a different Hiram than the Hiram that was mentioned um, before. Other people offer a different explanation: that in one place it's referring to her place of birth, while the other one uh, it's referring to her residence. So namely that she was of the tribe of Dan by birth, but she was from Naphtali. This was another explanation um, that, that her, her place where she lived was not in the same tribe that of, of where she was born. A third opinion um, is that she was from the tribe of Dan by birth, but then got married to a man from the tribe of Naphtali. So again, like she would become kind of part of that tribe through marriage. So there are different people offer different explanations. Um, so it's not like a very critical thing. There's easy ways to understand um, things. You know, sometimes people make a very big deal about uh, when people find like, okay, what is this? This is a discrepancy. This means like the, the word of God. This is not the word of God. It is not infallible. It is not, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit and so on. But there are many reasons why things could be. Like, for instance, like I live in Katy, for instance, but I could also say I live in Houston. You know, like if I'm, if I'm in another city and people don't know what Katy is, and they say, where are you from? I say, oh, I live in Houston. Well, technically, I don't live in Houston. Technically, I live in Katy, right? Are there be other times where I say, uh, I, live, I, I live in Katy, right? So is there a discrepancy that in some cases I say this, in some cases I say this? No, it's not, it's not a discrepancy. There, are, there, there, there is an explanation for it. And the people at that time would have understood it better than us because, of course, we are very far removed from the geography. We are far removed from the place there and, and, and who these people were. So we're just kind of taking things based on these words, all right? But it's easy for us to misunderstand what what is meant, okay? Um, so now um, uh, this chapter is going to start describing some of the things that were made for the temple. So again, this is the furnishings of the temple, the things that are in the temple. It says, And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for, for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and the two rows of pomegranates. So this is like a, it's not real pomegranates, just like a decoration that looks like pomegranates. Above the network, all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capital. 
the capital which were on the top of the pillars if you know the capital is kind of like this decorative piece that's on top of a pillar um like if you've seen like the pillar is just a column and then at the top there's like this larger um decorative piece this is what is called the capital the capitals which were on top of the pillars and the hall were in the shape of lilies four cubits the capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface which was next to the network and there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple he set up the pillars on the right and called its name jachin and he set up the pillars on the left and he called its name boaz the tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies so the work of the pillars was finished and he made the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and the line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Um, what is the sea? So w one thing that um, to, to, to understand, to keep in mind, is that the temple is like a larger and more embellished version of the tabernacle. But the basic structure and the basic items that were present in one are present in the other, but maybe in the temple they were larger, right, and, and, and looked slightly different. So this C, okay, is um, equivalent to the bronze laver in the tabernacle, okay? This is where the priests would wash their hands, okay? But here in this C, it's gigantic compared to the laver of the tabernacle. And he's going to speak more about it, and I'll show you also a picture. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inwards. So you can see a picture of it here. <coughs> so this is a large vessel filled with water okay and you see here these oxen there's 12 oxen um, all facing outward three feet facing each of the cardinal directions and you can see how big it is like relative to a human being who is standing here it's very very large okay it was a handbreadth thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup like a lily blossom it contained 2,000 baths so that's like the amount of water it also made ten carts of bronze. He also made ten carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart. Four cubits its width, and three cubits its height. Okay, so these carts of bronze, these were like ten smaller basins, ten smaller lavers. Okay, um, they were on these carts that had wheels, right? So you could cart them around uh, to do different things. And these were used to like um, wash the sacrifices they were used to clean the animals that were going to be offered and so on each of these lavers could accommodate 300 gallons of water okay um, and according to jewish writers the 10 lavers were filled with new water to always stay pure they were used to wash the sacrifice meat while the priest would wash their hands in the sea of cast bronze so that large sea was for the washing of hands of the priest whereas these smaller lavers that were portable to move around were used to wash all the sacrifices you have to remember that the offering of sacrifices in the old testament for the jewish people this was a constant non-stop activity right like this was a bustling place this was a place that was filled with people 
filled with activity, filled with people coming to offer sacrifices. The priests were constantly working, many, many priests. So it was like, I mean, if you want to consider it almost like a factory of offering sacrifice, like many, many, many sacrifices were being offered. So because so the people, of course, were much, much more in number than they were back back before this was a permanent temple and everyone would come to offer sacrifice at least once a year but 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 usually more so so they had to have the facilities in order to be able to do and to offer all of the sacrifices of all of these people and this was the design of the carts they had panels and the panels were between frames on the panels that were between the frames were lions oxen and cherubim and on the frames were, was a pedestal on top Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. So this is just speaking about like the decorations on these carts. Every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outside diameter. And also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels. The axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of a wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, their hubs were all of cast bronze. And, and, they, and there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of a half cubit, it was perfectly round, and on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lines, and palm trees, wherever there was a clear space on each, with wreaths all around. Thus he made the ten carts, all of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape. Okay, so you can see here kind of a depiction of what these carts look like. The images are much easier to understand than all of the words, but that's pretty much what it was. It was these engraved, decorated um, carts with made of bronze with four wheels. It had these uh, lavers, like these big sinks in them um, that were portable. Each one had about 300 gallons, and they would be used to wash all of the animal sacrifices that would be offered. Then he made 10 lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40, uh, 40 baths, and each laver was four cubits. Each uh, On each of the 10 carts was a laver. Laver is the sink. And he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house and toward the southeast. So um, the, the we know that the, the temple, it faces west, okay, faces west. So here, this is the temple here, okay, this is the entrance of the temple. So it's facing west. West is on this side, east is on this side. And there's this is symbolic because um, nowadays when we build the church, we build the church facing to the east. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming from the east. So the, the direction of east represents the reconciliation with God and the direction of the west represents like separation from God. So the fact that the temple is built to the west is, is, is kind of indicative saying, like, even with all of these sacrifices, the people were still not reconciled with God. This is why the, the, the Messiah, who is the Lamb of God, had to come, offer himself as the sacrifice, which then brought us in reconciliation with God again. And now we build our churches facing to the east, symbolizing that reconciliation, symbolizing that oneness with God. Okay, So here he's saying that this, is, this side over here is the east, this side is the west. Okay, So the temple is facing to the west. And... Um, 
and it says what the sea uh, he set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast so if the west is over here then the south is over here and this is the east so southeast here this is where this sea um, which is again this gigantic um, bowl of water where the priest would wash his hands that's where it would stay Huram made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. So Huram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. The ten carts, the ten lavers on the carts, one sea, and twelve oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. So these are all the articles, all the items that he made. All these articles which Huram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. In the plain of, of Jordan, the, in the plain of Jordan, the king had, had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zaratan. So this is the Jordan plain. This is the Jordan River here. Okay. And and um this city here, Zarethan, and it's not really shown on here, but Succoth is over here on the other side of the river. So he's saying that in this area, okay, between these two cities, the where where this um, clay was, this was used in making molds for the construction um, of these items, okay. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, and the table of gold on which was the showbread. All these other items, again, that we've already discussed back when we talked about the tabernacle, all these items were also present inside. The lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the door of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So all of these items were brought in to the house of the Lord, and everything was present. Then they brought in the ark, now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant from the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast and the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So this month of Ethanim, it's also called Tishri, corresponds to October-November um, time frame in our calendar. Um, and this time also corresponded to the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles is one of the feasts that the Lord had called the people to, um, to keep back in the book of Leviticus, back a long time ago. Uh, this is right after they had come out of Egypt as slaves. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month, which is the same month we're talking about here, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. 
It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Okay, so so this is kind of a celebration of this Feast of Tabernacles, um, which, of course, this is like the tabernacle. This is the house. This is the house of God that is now getting ready to be consecrated. Okay, all these items have been put, and now God is going to come and consecrate this house. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. So they took all the items that were in the tabernacle. So remember, the tabernacle was a portable tent. It was a portable tent that was used by the Israelites all throughout as they were traveling through, uh, uh, through the wilderness. And after they had come to the promised land, they set it up in a semi-permanent place where it would remain. It was no longer traveling from place to place. And now they are building the permanent temple, which is a replacement for the tabernacle. They took all the items that were in the tabernacle. One of the most important, which is mentioned here, is the Ark of the Covenant, right? So what was the items inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. The Rod of Aaron. The Rod of Aaron. And the Pot of Manna. And the Pot of Manna, okay? And, and these things are reminders to the people. These are the Ten Commandments, of course, the tablets that were given to, Mo to, to Moses on Mount Sinai when God essentially revealing his commandments to the people. So they kept that in the Ark of the Covenant. The pot of manna is the manna that was coming from heaven that sustained the people for 40 years in the wilderness. This was also put in there as a memorial to remember how God was a sustainer to them. Also, the rod of Aaron also represented the guidance and the, the sustenance of God to the people. Okay, And so they brought in this Ark of the Covenant, and they carried it, um, the Levites, they carried it on poles as it was intended to be carried. You can see here in the picture that there's these poles that are carrying this <coughs> big, big Ark like it's a big chest, and they're carrying it on their shoulders, um, entering into the temple. So they're carrying the Levites, who are the only ones who are allowed to carry any of these items. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be countered or numbered for multitude. Um, so, so here they are now, like as a part of this ceremony of consecration, where all of the people have assembled together with King Solomon, okay, and they are just offering so many sheep. They're uh, offering so many oxen, right? Like th because this is like an important, like like consecration of this temple. Right? They're using this for the first time. They're offering all of this in thanksgiving to God. This is the whole purpose for this, um, this uh, temple that was built. Then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary. So the inner sanctuary, remember there's three sections of the temple. There's the outer court outside. There is the holy place, which is like the first part when you go inside the building. And then there's the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter only once a year. And in there is where would reside the Ark of the Covenant, which had the items that, um, that, I, that we mentioned. Okay, So they brought the Ark of the Covenant. They put it into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, Okay, under the wings of the cherubim. So the, the, the Ark of the Covenant itself had these two cherubim of gold, um, on top of it with their wings outstretched touching each other but in the temple itself because the temple is fancier has more decorations has more things than the tabernacle did in the in the temple itself the most holy place had these very gigantic cherubim as a part of the building that also 
um, touch their wings together. And here they're putting the Ark of the Covenant in. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark. So those are the cherubim I'm talking about. And the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. Okay. The poles extended. These are the poles that was used to carry the Ark. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So what's interesting here is it's saying that what was inside the ark is only the two tablets of stone which Moses put there. Now, we know that the other items were also there, okay? So what is the explanation for why those items are not mentioned? Well, the pot of manna, the rod of Aaron, they're not mentioned as being inside. Here it's saying the only thing inside was the two tablets of stone. If we read in Hebrews 9, verse 4, it says, The ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So in the New Testament, St. Paul is saying to the Hebrews that those three items were there inside, okay, the Ark of the Covenant. How do we then understand, like, why this is, why is it saying this? So it's possible um, that the items were not always inside, okay? The items were not always inside. If you actually read here in the book of Exodus and Numbers, where God is commanding the people what to do with the pot of manna and what to do with the rod of Aaron. This is what it says. So in Exodus 16, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. So if you, if you pay attention to that, it didn't say in this verse actually to put the pot of manna inside it said to lay it up before the Lord, to lay it up, to be kept for your generations. And it says, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony, right? Before the testimony could mean it's next to it. You know, it's, it's, it's right next to it. Also, for the rod of Aaron in number 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put, uh, you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. So it's possible that these items were next to the Ark of the Covenant in this way. Um, also, it's possible that those items were put inside of the Ark during transport, but then they were removed and put next to or before the testimony um, uh, once it reached its destination there in, in, the, in the Holy of Holies. Um, so, so that's another possibility. It's also possible that at this time, those items had been taken because... When King David was king, there was a time where uh, the people, when they were trying to win their battles, uh, they brought the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a period of time where the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, And so it's possible that during this time when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, that the Philistines had taken those items, the pot of manna, the rod of Aaron, and they were lost at this point. So it's not completely clear. We know that St. Paul said that there was a time where those all three items were in the Ark of the Covenant. We know that it sounds like that the commandment was that you place those items next to the Ark of the Covenant. We know that it's possible that some items were stolen. Of course, we know that ultimately when Jerusalem was destroyed, 
um, that these items were lost. Okay, so um, so so obviously we don't have them today, even though some people claim that they have the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but there's no real evidence to show that anyone has the Ark of the Covenant. Um, if you watch Indiana Jones movies, maybe you find that. Um, okay, so that's that's kind of where where we are there. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. <coughs> and this is very important because what is happening here? <coughs> Ultimately, even with all of the gold and the bronze and the silver and the decorations and everything that's been described and all the construction, right? What made this truly to be a special place was not the fanciness of it, was not because of all the decorations in it, because you can have other buildings that are fancy, you can have other buildings that are expensive, maybe bigger, or have even more gold or more whatever than this building, right? The thing that made it to be a special place was the presence of God in it, okay? And so, so <coughs> God is filling the place, okay? When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. This cloud was the presence of God, okay? The presence of God. Similarly, this is what makes also the church to be a special place. It is the presence of God that makes it special. It is not just the organization or the initiatives or the services or the, you know, the, the different things that we as human beings, we try to do. To, to do a good job of things, to, to present things in a good way, which of course is important. But the thing that really makes the house of God to be a special place is the presence of God because ultimately we are offering a spiritual service and, and this is a place of spiritual worship. This is what makes the church different than any other place, right? And we know that the presence of God is important and special regardless of the place. For instance, even when you speak about like the nativity that we're celebrating tomorrow, we know that the Lord was born in a manger. He was born in like this shabby place with animals, right? And it wasn't a clean place, right? It was a place that was like, like no one of us would even want to go there, right? But the Lord was there, right? And he made that place to be a holy place. He made that place to be like, like a place that is filled with his presence and his glory. Um, so, so this is what was happening here. The ultimate like consecration here is God is saying, I accept this building. I accept your offerings. I, I fill this place with my presence, okay, to make it holy. And this cloud, um, which is the presence of God, God, it was called in Hebrew, it was called Shekinah, Shekinah, okay? This, this Shekinah is like the, the, the presence of God um, in a place, Okay, and there's other rabbinic literature that mentions this Shekinah. And here's like some quotations, like just to give you an idea of how the people understood what Shekinah was. Okay, it says, while a person studies the Torah, the Shekinah is among them, meaning the presence of God is among them while they are reading the Torah. When ten are gathered for prayer, there the Shekinah rests. When three sit as judges, the Shekinah is with them. Okay, or in the case of like a personal need, it says the Shekinah dwells over the head side of the sick man's bed. This presence of God is present whenever we are participating in something that is holy or we are offering a prayer. When people are praying, the Shekinah is there. When people are sitting to judge because they are in need of the wisdom of God, the Shekinah is there. Okay, 
when 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 um, when a person is reading the Torah or the Word of God, the Shekinah is there. Also in the Revelation, uh, it says in Revelation 15, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. See, it's very similar imagery, right? And Revelation is saying the, the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and his power, and no one was able to even enter the temple because the smoke was so strong, right, filling the whole temple. Similarly here, it says the cloud filled the house so much that the priests, they could not continue ministering. Like they couldn't continue what they were doing because the intensity of the smoke was such that it made it impossible, right? And so this, again, is God showing his presence um, in this place. In the vision of Ezekiel, that he had of the temple. It says in Ezekiel 10, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So this brightness of the Lord's glory, this presence of God in, in, in the church, this presence of God in the temple, this is the same presence of God that is in each of us, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enters into us. And so we have this cloud, right, of the glory of God inside of us if we allow him to work. And like many uh, examples that we see in the scripture, what's happening here is this synergy, this, this, this cooperation between God and man. What is it that caused God to appear this way here? Well, obviously it was his will that he would appear this way in this visible form for everyone to see. And he appeared only in the temple in this way didn't appear anywhere else. Actually, all of these examples that I gave you in the book of Revelation, this is him appearing in the temple. In the book of Ezekiel, in this vision, he's appearing in the temple. Here, he's appearing in the temple as well, okay? Because he is filling the temple. This is his house. This is his place of residence. But it was the people who built it, right? And this is the cooperation. God tells them, this is how I need you to arrange my house so that I will appear in it, so that I will be present in it. Like when God tells us, here are my commandments, here is how I want you to live, so that you are arranged in such a way so that I can manifest myself inside you, so that I can be in you and a part of you, right, to, to, to overflow in you, to be present in you, I need you to do such and such. And he tells us, like, for instance, we need to be baptized. We need to live a certain way. We need to confess our sins. And then once we have arranged all things, just like here he is telling the people, you have to build the temple a certain way and here are all the dimensions and the materials and, you know, everything that they did. And only after all of that was done, then this glory of the Lord appeared, right? Then this is the way that God is showing that he is responding to the prayers of the people. He's responding to the work of the people. So he tells them what to do, and then when they do it, he rewards them with his presence, right? And so this is kind of like the pattern. God is telling us what to do. And when we do it, we are rewarded with his presence, and we are rewarded with understanding. And this is important, because some people try to do the opposite. Like if God comes and says, I want you to build a temple, and then I will appear in the temple. Some people might look at this and say, well, prove to me that if I build the temple, you will appear in the temple. There's no proof. Like, there's no proof. Like, if you're going to sit there trying to analyze the situation and try to figure out, like, does it make sense that if I build a temple? Well, what if I build a temple differently? Well, well, let me wait for someone else to build a temple. Well, let me find any excuse not to build a temple. And then in the end, I convince myself, like, God wouldn't have appeared. Like, God wouldn't have done what he said, right? The way that God 
responds is he responds to our actions, right? He says, he says, build the temple, and then I will show you myself. I will show you my glory when you build the temple. But anyone who is skeptical and chooses not to build, they will not see the glory of God, right? When someone reads the word of God and, and reads it with skepticism, reads it with a critical sense of um, just trying to find reasons to poke holes in it, trying to find reasons not to perform it, not to do it, waiting for there to be some kind of proof before they believe, well, maybe that person is not going to find that proof that they're looking for. But a person who in simplicity and humility says, I want to experience this God, I will try what he asks me to do. I will make the sacrifice that he asked me to make. I will live like he wants me to live with the hope that he will then reveal himself to me. These people did all this work out of faith, right? There was no, there was no proof that after they had done all of this, that God would then appear in the temple the way that he did, right? And maybe they weren't even expecting this. He didn't come out and say, if you build all of this, then this event is going to happen and the whole temple is going to be filled with cloud. No, they, they, they just followed what, he, what, what they were told and they followed it to the letter, everything that God had said, and, and then they, this is how they were rewarded. They saw this presence of God, they experienced the presence of God, and this was a way for God to communicate to the people that I am with you, right? I am, I am with you. I am not distant and far away even though oftentimes it feels to us that maybe God is far away or maybe to the people it felt like God is distant and far away. But we see actually as we celebrate the incarnation tomorrow that God is not distant. Like he comes to us. He comes close to us, near us. This is why we call him Emmanuel, which is God came near. God is near, right? This is a way for God demonstrating his nearness. And all of the acts of love that God demonstrates to the people throughout all the history of the Old Testament is God showing his nearness. Like whenever God would speak, the people would say, this is, a, this is his, he is near. Like we can hear his voice speaking to us. Or even when he sent prophets, right? This is again, uh, like a way that God is demonstrating his closeness to his people. But ultimately, the ultimate closeness was in the incarnation. God is dwelling in our midst. But even more than the incarnation is the Pentecost. Because in the Pentecost, God is not just next to us. This is why even when, when, when the disciples were distressed, when, God, when Christ told them that he had to depart, you know, that he had to ascend to heaven, that he had to leave them, and the disciples were, were, were distressed by this. They didn't want him to leave. But actually Christ said, this is for your good. It is for your good that I depart so that the comforter may come, so that the helper can come. And this comforter, this helper, that dwells inside the believer is even greater than the Lord who dwells next to the believer. Because the apostles were then able to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them greater than what they were even able to do with the Lord with them in the flesh. Right? Look at what the actions of the apostles were after the coming of the Pentecost. From day one, immediately, like St. Peter goes out and he gives a sermon and 3,000 people are saved and are baptized. From the first day, you know, they go and they, they do all of these miracles. They heal like they, they're able to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Like they, they, they do all these things because now God is present in them. It's like this Shekinah, right, is, 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 he, is, he is inside, right? He is not just on the outside, however close, but he is very close um, on the inside. This is a good stopping point because, um, because chapter 8 is very long and um, God willing, next time we can continue. The rest of chapter 8. Does anyone have any comments or questions about anything we discussed so far? Okay. 
glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, O God, and we ask that we would see your glory lived out in our life and that you would be present to us, that we would notice you and we would experience you and would be aware of your presence at all times. Help us to understand your word and to find, O Lord, all the treasures and all the truths that are found inside that we can apply it to our lives and grow and benefit. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all, go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. <laughs>